we have the great joy of having Julia Dembeck to teach this morning. She wrote the lesson and she's teaching and I'm gonna tell you a little bit about her from her perspective and from mine. Uh, Julia grew up in a Christian home in Jackson, Minnesota. We had the fun of having her mom with us last night. That was very sweet. She trusted Jesus at her, as her savior as a young age, but came to truly treasure Jesus in her early 20s after walking through deep suffering and a significant health diagnosis, which to this day has significantly aligned her perspective to things of eternal value. Julia and her husband Ryan have been married for 12 years. They have three sons, Joshua, six and a half, Caleb, four and a half, and Elijah, almost two. Before staying home with her boys full-time, Julia was a counselor and program manager at a Christian domestic abuse shelter, but is now thankful for the opportunity to homeschool her boys. She also enjoys having a good cup of coffee, connecting with others, and seeing how God is working in big and little ways. As a family, they love being outside as much as possible. Some top summer activities include playing backyard soccer and baseball, hiking on trails near their home, and going to the beach. Julia and Ryan started attending Bethlehem 12 years ago. They love this body and find joy in being able to serve. Ryan is an elder and Julia serves on the women's ministry leadership team and helps lead moms and helps teach Bible study. <laughs> She's thankful for the gift to learn and grow from one another as we aim to know God through his word and make him known. And I am hard pressed to think of anyone I know whose joyful, enthusiastic love for Jesus radiates from them as much as Julia's does from her. It's been a joy to get to know her, and she's always an inspiration to me. Come on up and we'll pray. Father, I thank you so much for the love for you that you have put in Julia's heart, and I pray that you will continue to cause it to grow ever stronger and deeper. Mm -hmm pray that you help her this morning. I thank you that you have helped her as she's prepared. And I pray that you help her now, that your voice would speak through her, that our hearts would be tender, and that her winsome delight in you would be contagious, and we would all leave here with more delight in you in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks so much, Beth. Well, it has been such a joy studying through these parables with you all over the past few weeks. I have been spurred on and have grown just in my treasuring of Jesus through the discussion group, um, the women in my discussion group, and many of you in this room in conversations we've had even outside of Bible study. I know many of you have decades of walking with Jesus, and yet you open up your Bibles with just this fresh awe of wanting to know Jesus and beholding him in his preciousness. And that is my prayer for us this morning, that whether you have been walking with Jesus for decades or you are recently walking with Jesus, that we would leave this morning having just that fresh desire to say yes, knowing Jesus and making him known. There truly is nothing greater. And this morning, we are going to be looking through Matthew 13, specifically verses 44 through 50, to help us in seeing more of Jesus. If you, so if you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew 13, or you can find it in your workbooks on page 27. So let's get our bearings for where we are in Matthew. Jesus is fairly early on in his ministry, but he's already attracted crowds and has 
gained just rising opposition from Pharisees. And if you were here for week one, Jared walked us through parts of Matthew 13. He helped us see why Jesus speaks in parables, and he walked us through a couple of the parables in Matthew 13. We saw Jesus was speaking to the crowds and the disciples, and then he left the crowds, and then the disciples came to him, and they wanted to know, Jesus, why are you speaking in such a this, why are you speaking in parables? Why are you explaining things like this? And so they wanted to know more. So Jesus explained the parable of the weeds, and that's where Jared left off, and this is where we are going to pick up. Jesus continues to explain three more parables to the disciples, and I've titled the first two Precious Treasure in verses 44 and 46, and Precious Warning in verses 47 through 50. And my aim for us today is to find our supreme treasure in King Jesus. I'll start with reading the first two parables, make a couple observations, apply it to our lives, and then we'll do the same for the last. But first, let me pray. Father, what a sweet privilege and honor it is to come together as sisters and open up your word and learn and grow from one another. We turn to you, asking for your grace to open our eyes and ears through the Spirit to read these scriptures and hear and see Jesus as precious as our treasure. May my words be helpful to these sisters, and may you be brought all the glory. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, so starting in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. I've titled this section, a precious, a precious Treasure by Surprise. In verse 44, we see a man out in a field, most likely working, but not seeking out treasures, but just happened to find it. This seems pretty unlikely to us. We often don't hear of someone just finding treasure in a field or really anywhere. On Friday, I was at the beach with my boys, and my four-year-old was like, we need to find buried treasure. I'm pretty sure we can find buried treasure. So we dug and dug tirelessly. Didn't find anything. But a man was coming with a metal detector, and so they're like, surely he has found treasure. So they excitedly asked him, but to their disappointment, he also had not found any buried treasure. Just a couple coins, and like the Aldi coins, not like the precious coin we heard last week. So my oldest then said, you're right. It's impossible for us to find treasure. But the disciples would have understood how it would have been likely to find treasure because the Israelites had no banks and no place to secure valuables. So when thieves or invading armies threatened, people often buried all of their treasures and their valuables in clay pots in the ground. And if an owner failed to return, the treasure remained in the ground until someone just happened to stumble upon it, as the man in the parable did. I want to make two observations in the short parable. One, this treasure is hidden. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. But what does it mean that the treasure is hidden and someone can just find it? A commentator helped in shedding light on this. He said, Someone religiously apathetic to the things of God, even specifically Jesus, can stumble upon these precious treasures and comprehend its appropriate worth. This is encouraging, that the Spirit can work to awaken somebody to finding the treasure and, being, and begin supremely treasuring Jesus, even when there is no desire previously. And second, this treasure is supremely valuable. When the man found the treasure, he knew it was something that far exceeded everything he owned. His eyes were open to the incomprehensible value. 
So what did he do? It says, in joy, he willingly sold all that he had in order to buy the field and obtain the treasure. In the parable of the pearl of great price, we see Jesus speaking in a similar theme. But instead of the invaluable treasure being hidden and found by chance, there's an invaluable treasure being found by a diligent quest. And the disciples would have known how incredibly tedious the process is to find and obtain pearls. The process to obtain pearls required individuals to go to select seas, and they would tie a large rock, or they would tie, tie a large rope around a large rock and to their ankles, jump out of the boat so they would be taken to the bottom of the sea in search of an oyster. And if they found one, they would cut the rope, come back up to the boat, just in hopes that there would be a pearl inside. And if not, they would have to do that process all over again, which shows how rare and valuable it is to find a pearl. In this parable, there are also two observations I want to draw out. One that's in contrast to the hidden treasure, and one that's the same. First, this treasure is found in diligence. We see in this parable the merchant is on a quest to find pearls. He's well familiar with them. He studies them. He knows them. He obtains profit from them. And he is diligently seeking for pearls of high value. Jesus compares this merchant to someone diligently searching for some spiritual reason for life, diligently asking questions, and seeking answers. And this too is encouraging because we know that God can decisively open their eyes to find Jesus and his kingdom as supremely valuable. Like it says in Hebrews 11:6, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And similar to the first parable, we see the repeated theme that the object found is supremely valuable. When the merchant discovers the pearl, he knows the value surpasses anything he's seen before, so he's willing to sell everything to obtain this pearl. But he's not reluctant. He's not feeling like he has to sell all that he has. This parable doesn't explicitly say he was joyful to sell everything, but I'm willing to guess that there was joy in obtaining this one pearl and ending his quest. The kingdom isn't just like a treasure that's beautiful, valuable, and rare. It's worth more than everything you already have, and it's so rare that you have a pretty great confidence you won't find something like this again in your lifetime. These short parables make the same point and give us a precious picture of the reality of the kingdom. And Jesus is calling us to treasure the kingdom above all else. But if you're like me, you're asking, how can I treasure this big concept of the kingdom of heaven? And what exactly is the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven is where Jesus rules and reigns over all. And in the gospel according to Matthew, Jesus gives us pictures into what his kingdom does and will look like where he is king. So to keep it simple for us today, I want to keep that definition in mind while also calling us to find our supreme treasure in King Jesus. He is the ultimate treasure, the one who saved us from our sins and brings us into his kingdom as citizens. And it, he is coming again to establish his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. These are remarkable and precious truths. But as we go through these parables, it's important to make known two things two things Jesus is not saying. One, you cannot purchase or buy your salvation. And two, you cannot give up enough things to obtain the kingdom. One of the most clear texts we have here is in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. For those whom God has worked to see and treasure the kingdom as supremely valuable, it was not of their own doing, no earning it, no purchasing it, nothing was done to value it above all else. Faith and treasuring Jesus came as a free gift of God's elective work to draw us to him. This parable also cautions the disciples, you cannot hold on to the kingdom and something else. 
You cannot hold on to the things of earth or your flesh-centered desires and also see and treasure Jesus as supreme. There's not this middle ground. You either see and then treasure the kingdom as supreme, or you might say, look, there's treasure, but still holding on to the desires of the flesh or the kingdom of self. We see earlier in Matthew, Jesus talking about the kingdom treasures to the crowds in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Through these two parables, Jesus continues the invitation to his disciples. What is the object of your faith? What is your true treasure? And these parables invite us to look into our hearts and ask, what am I treasuring? It's easy to say we treasure Jesus, but how does that truth actually change the way we live? These pictures aren't just the worker and merchant saying, wow, incredible treasure, and then they just kept doing what they had been doing. No, in joy they pursued that treasure. They allowed no roadblock to prevent them from acquiring possession of the treasure. Said a different way, they counted everything they did have as worthless compared to the preciousness of what they found. So they gave up those things in order to obtain the treasure. In Philippians 3.8, Paul is tracking with what Jesus is saying here. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And a short plug on Philippians 3.8, that is our theme verse for this next year for women's ministry. So in Bible study and moms, we are going to be looking at the unparalleled preciousness of Jesus, and we are going to be spurred on to see what does it mean to treasure Jesus and behold him. So look forward to this next fall. But now back to these parables. You might ask, I think I'm treasuring Jesus in the kingdom of heaven, but how can I confirm that I'm finding this truth as precious? To assess if you are treasuring the kingdom, Paul invites us to ask ourselves, is the way that I am living reflect the inward reality that Jesus is my supremely precious treasure? Is there a marked change in my desires and behaviors that indicate I have found the treasure of the kingdom? But what might be some of those marks of these changed desires and behaviors? Here are some questions to consider. What do you value? What do you spend your money on or give your money to? What do you spend your time doing? your activities, the time give to ministry, discipleship? Do you unreservedly pursue Jesus? Meaning, is Jesus just for Sunday or Wednesday, or is there an intentional pursuit to know him throughout the entire week? And do you readily share about this precious treasure? Are you eager to talk about Jesus and the things you are learning in the word with family or friends, or are you eager to look for opportunities to share the gospel? And as you consider these questions now, and as you'll discuss them later on in your discussion groups, I pray that the Spirit would work to open your eyes to see what you are truly treasuring or maybe what you might not be willing to give up and that there wouldn't be the sense of guilt or reluctantly, okay, how much do I need to kind of change? No, like the merchant and the worker, that there would be joy in saying yes and treasuring Jesus and knowing him and making him known is worth it. To have him is worth any of these little changes or things that I may count as loss. But these changes in aligning our ultimate treasuring of Jesus to our outward behaviors just doesn't come the moment we say we treasure Jesus and then last the rest of our faith journey. No, these changes come daily through thousands of deaths to our flesh as we look to Jesus and by the Spirit's help joyfully shift our view of our circumstances, how we act, respond, what we give and do to reflect treasuring Jesus. And as I studied through these parables, I wrestled through these questions. (laughs) 
I was convicted and spurred on in really trying to say, I do treasure Jesus, but how does that reflect in the way I'm living? My husband and I have had numerous conversations over the last few months as I've been preparing to say, yes, how how do we actually allow this truth to reflect the way we live and how we think and respond and act to know Jesus and to make him known? There truly is nothing greater. And this is going to be the process for the rest of our faith journey, growing and treasuring Jesus until we see him face to face. And if you're hearing this and not trusting in Jesus fully, maybe because you're unsure of the magnitude and clarity of what the kingdom of Jesus is, or maybe because you're hesitant of what it will cost you, the hostility and rejection from family or friends, or maybe there's other barriers to why you're not trusting in Jesus. I pray the Spirit would today open your eyes and ears to know and trust Jesus, to know that there truly is nothing greater than the joy of being found in Him and life eternal. But these first two parables aren't just to confirm how you're viewing this precious picture of the kingdom, but they are to show you the reality that how you live in light of the coming kingdom now determines what you experience at the end of the age. And like Jesus has done throughout Matthew, he uses a word picture, a parable, to illustrate what this looks like through a precious warning. The parable of the net develops themes from the previous parables. Three of the seven parables in chapter 13 have a judgment theme. In the parable of the sower, the theme of judgment is subtle, but there is nothing subtle about the endings of the parable of the weeds and the parable of the net. Jesus makes known there will be a judgment at the end of the age, and while it feels delayed to us, it will come. And Jesus, like he did in the parable of the weeds, gives us a precious warning to any who the Spirit gives ears to hear and eyes to see. But why is Jesus spending time repeating this message of coming judgment? First, I think it's because this message is really important. It's worth repeating. And second, the disciples didn't get it before with the picture of the weeds. They probably would have gotten it with this picture of the net because most of them were fishermen and they were familiar with this process. And they would have understood what that meant at that time. So as we go through these verses, we'll see explicitly what Jesus is stating the kingdom of heaven is like, especially the kingdom at the close of the age. I will be reading for us um, at verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. So the disciples, as they heard this process of fishing, they would have known what it was like to throw out this large net. It was literally this net that was just dragged to the bottom of the seafloor from two boats and gathered every kind of fish. But they knew that not every fish caught was fit to consume in the market, that there had to be a sorting. And one commentator stated that the kind here is genos, or nation, people, class, or kind, which is a really odd way to talk about fish, but a natural way to talk about peoples of all nations. So it's perhaps a reference to every tongue, tribe, and nation. Now let's keep reading in verse 48. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus now explicitly states what it means to sort the bad fish and the good fish. And in looking at just this parable, we see the good fish represent the righteous, those in the kingdom, and the bad fish are the evil and will be thrown into the fiery furnace. The focus here is on the state of the kingdom when judgment occurs. Though it includes both the righteous and the wicked, a thorough sorting out will certainly take place. When we look back at the parable of the weeds and the parable of the weeds explained, we see a fuller picture of the behaviors and outcomes of the righteous, those in the kingdom, and the evil and lawless ones, those out of the kingdom. 
I'm going to read Jesus explaining this parable starting in verse 36, so you can follow along in your Bibles. Then, when he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So here we see the weeds compared to the bad fish. And what is the behavior? Remaining in sin and lawlessness, those that are not accepting and treasuring Jesus in the gospel. And what is the outcome? It's clear that at judgment, for all of those not trusting in Christ, they will be separated and thrown into the fiery furnace. And in that place, they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. One commentator is helpful in defining the weeping as sorrow and the gnashing of teeth as regret which signifies this consciousness that they have rejected Christ and are separated from him forever, which brings this incomprehensible sorrow and regret. Next, we see the comparison of the good seed and the good fish, which are the righteous, the children of the kingdom. And what is the behavior, though, of the righteous? It's helpful to look at the context of these parables. The parable that we just saw in the hidden treasure and pearl of great price tell us what the righteous children of the kingdom do treasure Jesus and his kingdom. They have ears to hear it and believe it will exceed all expectations, so they give up everything to obtain it. And what is the outcome for those who treasure the kingdom? They ultimately acquire possession of their inheritance, eternal fulfillment of life with Jesus. And as the parable of the weeds explains so poetically, the righteous who will on that day and forever shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. This is what believers are to hope for, the day when we will shine like the sun and we are finally delivered from evil, even from our sins and failings and sufferings. These righteous people, once the light of the world, now radiate the perfections and experience bliss in the consummation of their hopes. This is a glorious image, but for the unbeliever, this theme of judgment is a precious warning and an invitation. But why do I say this is a precious warning? because Jesus warns of the eternal ramifications to rejecting the message of the kingdom he proclaims. He states, judgment is coming, but he doesn't leave us to wait and figure out on our own how to become righteous and become a child of the kingdom by the time of judgment. It's a precious warning because he makes the way for us to become righteous, to become the good fish, the righteous one who is kept and preserved and not thrown out. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5:21. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. When Jesus took on our sin, taking on himself the heat of the fiery furnace and the unbearable separation from his Father, he took on the full wrath of God so that we might become righteous before God. And it's also a precious warning in that, like Jared mentioned in week one, judgment didn't come at the same time redemption came. God has been patient over the past 2,000 years, allowing those who see the treasure of Christ and the kingdom to respond in faith, to repent and follow Christ. And that's really good news for us. 2 Peter 3.8 says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So if you are not trusting in Jesus fully, 
Hear this warning as an invitation to turn from your sin, from your pursuit of the kingdom of self, from considering everything else but Christ as your treasure, and respond to the call of Jesus to follow him. Trust in him alone to save you from the judgment you deserve because of your sins and receive the forgiveness of your sins and the righteous standing given to you because of the work of Jesus in life and death. What you gain in the kingdom of God outweighs anything this world can offer. Take hold of this precious treasure, the forever joy of being in Jesus. And for those trusting in Jesus, would you hear this precious warning as a call to continue to share the gospel with those you encounter so they too would find their supreme treasure in Jesus? May the Spirit ignite within us a renewed desire to continue to share with our neighbors, with coworkers, with family members, parents, children, grandchildren. I was convicted and spurred on by this as well, to continue to have a fresh desire to share this treasure. Since our oldest was younger, we started teaching him that the best news we can share is the gospel. And we started connecting it to the joy that they experienced when they got a new Lego and wanted to tell their friends about their new Lego or learn a new soccer trick and wanted to eagerly share with the neighbor boy and saying, yes, mommy also gets excited. When I find a good deal at Costco, I can't wait to tell my friends what a good deal they can find at Costco. <laughs> it's like, but the same eagerness we feel is what we want to feel and knowing we have the best news ever. We want to share this hope. Or as mommy opens up my Bible, I want to share with you this rich truth that I was reading, and I want to share with others. And yet, there's times it's still hard. My oldest has caught on because last year there's a neighbor that we have built a relationship with, and she knows we are Christians, and yet just is kind of like, that's good for you, but I don't want anything to do with it. So we've invited her numerous times to church, and then we're like, okay, maybe just church in the park, and she just always had an excuse and reason why she couldn't come. So after many times, I just kind of stopped asking her. Well, this year, we had a fresh excitement for Church in the Park. And her boys were like, oh, we love Church in the Park. And my oldest was like, Mom, we haven't invited Marianne to Church in the Park yet. I was like, you're right. It's <laughs> like, I, I don't want another awkward conversation of feeling like, no, I don't want to come. And then I'm like, okay, where do we transition this next? But as I was going through this, I was like, no, may the Spirit renew us that we would not grow weary in sharing the hope that we have. If we truly believe that Jesus is our treasure and nothing else compares, why would I not want to say, yes, I want to share this with you. And as I close, I want to remind us that finding our supreme treasure in Jesus isn't static through our Christian walk, but a daily realignment that we are willing to abandon anything that prevents us from holding Jesus as our precious treasure. Growing and treasuring Jesus will come as we face trials, suffering, and even hostility. And yet that cost of remaining steadfast will produce in us opportunities to continue to grow and deepen our treasuring of Jesus. This cycle continues as we endure even more trials, suffering, and hostility, and lean into the promises of Scripture, which find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, producing in us an eternal weight of glory as we wait for him to return and establish his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, would you work this miracle in us by the power of the Spirit to find our supreme treasure in Jesus? Make our hearts and actions align that there is nothing greater than knowing and treasuring Jesus. And as we go from this place, would we have opportunities to share this treasure with those around us? Strengthen us to persevere through all things in you until you take us to be with you or you come to establish your kingdom here. 
We love you, Jesus, and it's in your precious name we pray. Amen.